Welcome to the podcast of Living Faith Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now you will hear Pastor Rich preach the sermon, A Christian's Labor, from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 15 through 29. We pray that God will use this sermon to speak to you directly. And now, to Pastor Rich. So I read an article on the National Health Service website about the causes of insomnia. And it said this, it's not always clear what triggers insomnia, but then they gave a list of some things that may cause it. Let me share them with you really quickly. The first one was stress or anxiety. In other words, worry. The next one was a poor sleeping environment. You know, too hot, too cold, uh, too light, too noisy, too dark. The next one, however, kind of touches home with some folks, lifestyle factors like jet lag or drinking alcohol or too much caffeine before bed. You know, you go to Dutch Brothers for a four shot mocha right before bedtime. The next one was mental health conditions like schizophrenia or even depression. Then the next one was health issues, physical health issues such as heart problems or sleep disorders, long-term pain. And then the final one was taking certain medication like antidepressants or epilepsy medications and certain steroids. Since this is Labor Day, what I thought would be apropos would come out of the Gospel of Mark for one week and talk about what a Christian should be laboring for. What should a Christian labor for and how can we find rest? So with that thought in the back of your mind, please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Now allow me to set a backdrop as you're turning in your Bibles to John 6. The backdrop of John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 had just occurred. And we studied the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Mark not many weeks ago and you know, that miracle, along with the miracle of the resurrection, is found in all four of the Gospels. So here in John, a crowd of people had gathered together to hear Jesus. And when evening had come, his disciples want to send them away to, you know, a bigger town to find food and lodging for the night. But Jesus asked Philip specifically a question to make the disciples realize who he is. Look, guys, I'm not a magician. I can do more than just these little miracles. I can do big things. And Philip was from this specific area. So it kind of makes sense that Jesus goes right to Philip with this question. And here's this question out of John 6, 5. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. And so Philip answers this way. It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person here just to have one bite. You know, Jesus wanted to shatter their closed mind thinking about who he was. I can do big things. And here's what I kind of take from that. When we willingly offer our entire selves to the Lord, he will use little ordinary things within our life to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. We got to remember that our God is so big. He's so strong. There's nothing our God cannot do. And we got to get away from that thinking that something is too big for our Lord. Here in the Gospel of John, Jesus used a little Lunchable to feed like 15 to 20,000 people. And so when we 
sacrificially and obediently follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give us gifts and talents to serve him and his purposes. Paul said something about this, that when we're surrendered to the Lord, that he'll do everything above what we can think or imagine in Christ. This is how Ephesians 3.20 says it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can think or ask, according to the power that now lives in us, to him be the glory in the church. What Jesus is trying to say in those verses is that he is using the church, you are the church, to do things exceedingly above things we can think or imagine. And so this morning, Jesus is going to teach these people who have gathered around what they should be laboring for. And they should be laboring for everlasting things, not temporary things of this world. So if you have your sermon note, Roman numeral one, the one who creates the storm can calm the storm. If your Bibles are open, John chapter six, let's begin with verse 15. John six fifteen. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose. Great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So what has happened is he just fed the 5,000 plus women and children. And now the crowd wants to force Jesus to be their physical king. They were willing to have him as king, but they're failing to recognize that he is the sacrificial lamb of God who came to give himself for our sins. They wanted an earthly king, but they were not willing to accept a heavenly king. There in your notes, the crowd was concerned with the things of the physical world as well as defeating the Roman oppression. But Jesus came to save us from our sin and they just didn't get it. These people are sheep without a shepherd and they wanted a shepherd like most of us do to do their will, not his will. So Jesus slips away from the crowd. He doesn't want them to take him by force. It's something that'd be contrary to God's plan. So he goes up on the mountain by himself. Here's kind of what I got from that. If Jesus, think about this, if God come in the flesh, Jesus, the son of God, needed time alone with the Father to pray and hear his voice. How much more does mortals need the same thing? So many times we neglect prayer. We run out the door because we're in such a hurry and we neglect this time alone with the Lord. If Jesus needed that time, how about you? H have you ever been to the point in your life where you just can't hear from God? You just don't know what his will is. I have so many people. I just don't know what God's will for my life is. Are you listening? Are you taking the time on purpose to listen to his still small voice? There in your notes, it's often during quiet times when we're alone with the Lord that he reveals his will and his plan to us. Now, it's not said here in the Gospel of John, but when we read this in the other Gospels, we're actually told, catch this, that Jesus 
compelled these disciples to get in the boat and get into that storm. That seems contrary to me. If Jesus is all knowing and he knows what's coming, why would he send his followers into a storm? How many of us have been in a storm in life and say, why, God? Have you ever asked God why? Don't raise your hand. Mark 6.45 says it this way. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. He made them get in that boat. And so as the disciples get into the boat, they have no idea what's awaiting them. Everything's calm. Everything's cool. We're just going to get in the boat. And Jesus withdraws himself to the Golan Heights. And the disciples get on this boat and they're heading to the other side. Now, you something you got to know about the Sea of Galilee, and we've studied this years before, but the Sea of Galilee is near the hills of northern Israel, and it's 700 foot catches below sea level, okay? It's eight miles wide, 12 miles long. FollowTheRabbi.com said this about the Sea of Galilee. The sea's location made it subject to sudden and violent storms. Storms developed when an east wind dropped cool air and it mixed with the warm air from the water. And then all of a sudden you'd have a storm, a mega storm. And so this sudden temperature change causes this fierce storm. And here's the disciples. They've been rowing about four miles and now they're about to capsize. But Jesus compelled them, told them, made them get into that boat. Imagine battling this storm. Now, apply it to us 2,000 years later. Imagine battling a storm in your life. And you would say, why, Lord? I serve you with my whole life. Why would you do this to me? And yet Jesus said, you needed to be in that storm. But Lord, here's the thing. Sometimes... The Lord calms the storms in our lives. And other times he allows the storms and calms us. Did you catch that? Sometimes in life, God calms the storms. But other times he allows the storm and calms you. Because he's got a purpose. Mark 6, 48 says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And again, imagine being these disciples. It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black. Here comes this storm. You're four miles offshore and you're about to capsize and you're thinking, oh, no, what's about to happen? And as they row this few miles, the storm's raging. They're scared. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they see someone walking on the water. Now, if it was calm out and it was calm seas and you saw someone walking on the water, that would freak you out. But if this storm's going on and you're already scared and you see someone walking on the water, now what do you think? I don't know about you, but this is a good time to learn how to pray, right? (laughs) If you didn't know how to pray before, this is a great time. But Jesus calms them by saying, it's I. Do not be afraid. You got to wonder, how well did they know Jesus that he just says those words and everything's cool? It's I. Do not be afraid. Great. Thanks, Jesus. You know, and what's so amazing again about this miracle is not only is he the one who calmed the storm, he's the one who created the storm. Mark 440. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? 
How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? Wow. Again, the reason why we as followers can trust the Lord Jesus Christ is because he's the one who can calm the storm and he's the one who made the storm. But if we're honest with ourselves, now we're about to get honest, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, we're about to get honest here. There in your notes, sometimes we create the storms found in our lives by our own failures and sins. Yet the Lord can still calm those storms when we repent and call on him to save us. How many of us have created storms in our own life? Again, don't raise your hand. I know you have. But in the darkest moments of our life and the storms are raging, what do we do? And all of a sudden we hear that still small voice of the Lord. It is I. Do not be afraid. As I write the sermon, my question to myself is, Rich, why do you wait till the storm is so bad? that the boat's about to capsize before you call on the one who can calm the storm. Why do you wait? When we can boldly come to the throne room of God anytime we want to, why do we wait till the boat's rocking? Why do we do that? Hebrews 6:19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered before us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This anchor we have, this hope we have, it's sure and steadfast, yet we're going to wait till that boat's ready to turn. Roman numeral two, don't work for things that won't last. Look at verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So the day after all this takes place, the day after they receive the food, they notice Jesus is missing. And so they go across the sea to try to find him. And I love how Jesus answers their question. Again, their question, when did you come here? And instead of answering him, Jesus reveals their hearts to him. They ask Jesus, when did you come here? And he's like, are we being honest with one another? And so he reveals their hearts to him instead of giving them an answer. You see, they wanted to be fed again. They're seeing Jesus as a magician instead of Lord of the universe. And they're saying, feed us again. There in your notes. In verse 26, Jesus penetrates their heart to reveal their true motives. You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, what Jesus is telling them is you're only interested in 
in physical things. And I'm trying to teach you spiritual things. You're only interested in the things here and now, and this stuff doesn't matter. Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So Jesus knew this crowd was not sincere in their adoration. He knew their heart. He knew their motivation. And so I love how he just opens it up and shows it to them. There in your notes, Jesus was calling people to a personal commitment, which requires a sacrifice. He was calling them from impure motives to pure motives. Here's the thing. Salvation is a free gift bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You can never earn it. You can never buy it. You can never work for it. However, after salvation, Jesus is asking you to commit your whole life to him. John F. Kennedy said, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And so in verse 27, Jesus warned them about the things they were chasing. Look again at verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. This life is so temporary. You know, I think about people who have stored up and stored up and stored up stuff, and you know, they're not taking one ounce of anything with them. And you think, why are you working so hard for temporal things? There in your notes, the most important thing in this world is having a relationship with Jesus Christ by the free gift of eternal life, which comes through faith. Charles Thomas Stubb was a British missionary who wrote a poem that's pretty famous, and this is what it says. Only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Several years ago, I read a book by Mark Cahill, and it was entitled One Thing You Cannot Do in Heaven. And I just want to share just a little tidbit of what the book said. The introduction of the book starts out with three very probing questions. Here they are. He asked, 300 million years from now, what will be the only thing that will matter? Will it matter how much money you made? Will it matter what kind of car you drove? Will it matter who won the NCAA football or basketball title this year? Will it matter who you took to homecoming dance? 300 million years from now, the only thing that will matter, catch this, is who is in heaven and who is not. Who is in heaven and who is not. So my question is, if who is in heaven is the only thing that's going to matter 300 million years from now, Shouldn't it be our concern today? Shouldn't that be our concern? You know, Jesus very clearly told us in Matthew 18, 11, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's his mission statement. So if it's of the utmost importance to Jesus to save the lost, shouldn't it be to us as well? And so my question, and again to myself and to you as well, is what are you doing today 
of significance that will matter 300 million years from now. What are you doing? Jesus taught us not to store up for ourselves things here where rust destroys and moth destroys and where thieves break in and steal. Because you came in naked and you're going out naked. You will bring nothing out of this world except people who receive Christ because of your testimony and your spiritual gifts. It's all you're taking with you. The significant value of telling people about Jesus will last 300 million years and then more. So Jesus told them not to labor for things that perish, which causes them to ask another question. I'd have some questions, wouldn't you? Jesus just says this, and I'm thinking, like, I've got 20 more questions, and they got one. And so Roman numeral three, give me the I must do list. If Jesus looked at you and said, here's what you got to do to get to heaven, don't you want to know? If you spent like 10 seconds in hell, this would be a question you'd want. This is how you get to heaven. Tell me how. What must I do? Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do and catch their words that we may work the works of God? What works of God must we do? And so they're basically asking what people we see all through the Bible. What must I do to be saved? What a great question. That one is on the final exam. But listen to what they say. What works? Plural. There in your notes. It's very typical for our flesh to want to fix the issues of life through our own strength. I don't know about you, but I'm a very type A person. If I've got something to do in the morning, I can't sleep past 3 a.m. I'm up and I got to get it done. And if you gave me a to-do list, I guarantee you, give me a checkoff list. 8 a.m., I'm drinking coffee and that list is done. That's just how I am. I've been that way my whole life. It's crazy. I don't care if I only got 15 minutes of sleep. I want that list done. If that list is hanging over my head, I can't sleep. I can't think. I can't do anything until my list is done. But the way to eternal life is an oxymoron. It's the easiest, hardest thing you'll ever do. It's completely free, but it'll cost you everything. Audio Adrenaline has a song called The Good Life. Those of you who are over 20 may have heard it. Some of the lyrics say this. This is the good life. I've lost everything. I could ever want, never dreamed of. This is the good life. I found everything I could ever need here in your arms. What good would it be if you had everything, but you wouldn't have the only thing you really need? There in your notes, receiving eternal life is not something you can work towards. The only way to receive eternal life is to admit you are empty and have nothing to offer. The only way to heaven is to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And so Roman numeral four, you must be all in. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them. Remember, they asked, what are the plural works? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you must believe in him who he sent. What are the works? Give me the list. Here's the work. No, but I want to earn it. I want to check the list off. No, no. Here's the work. One, 
all in, right? We've heard this term. It's from poker, you know, when you got a really good hand or you're trying to bluff one of the two and you shove all your chips in. At least that's what I'm told. I don't play poker. I'm all in. And then the person you're playing against is like, either he's got a really good hand or he's bluffing and you get to guess. And it could be a costly guess, right? Well, Lifehouse has a song called All In. And some of the lyrics say this. And I'm all in. Nothing left to hide. I've fallen harder than a landslide. I spent a week away from you last night. Now I'm calling, calling out your name. Even if I lose the game, I'm all in. I'm all in tonight. Yes, I'm all in for life. There in your notes. You see, we need to recognize that every true believer has been set apart by God and for God. If you are a true believer, you have been set apart for something. You may not know it. You may never taken a spiritual gifts test or anything else. And maybe you're just a carnal Christian living for yourself. I don't know. But you have been set apart by God and for God for something. And Ephesians 2 tells us very clearly that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works lest anyone should boast. But it also tells us in verse 10 that after salvation, you are to do good works that he prepared that you should do before the world was created. In other words, there's no half-hearted devotion serving Christ. Yes, it's free, but he wants every bit of you. He wants every molecule of you. He doesn't want half-hearted devotion from you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, money, or physical substance. In other words, the tangible things of this physical life. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have comfortable things. It's nice to have a car that when you turn the key, it runs. It really is. It beats the alternative. It really does. But if that's where your heart is, is chasing things... It's going to leave you empty, and you, are, you cannot serve two masters. And again, the only things that we can take to heaven, someone who received Christ because of our testimony, were the things that were done through the spiritual gifts that the Spirit did through us anyway. When we use our talents and our gifts for the kingdom, sure, we'll receive crowns someday, but God gets the glory, and those are the things we're going to take to heaven. Those are the only things we're going to take to heaven. So again, we receive salvation. We're given gifts. And then the Lord says, use them. And in fact, Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 12, 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. There in your notes. If you are exercising your spiritual gifts, you are playing a significant role in the body of Christ by doing that which has eternal value. So I want to get practical this morning. In my generation and the generations before, I was always taught if you want something, you work hard for it. That's what I was taught. No matter what it is, if you want something, work hard for it and you'll get it. And so I always thought about that. What does that mean if you want something, work hard for it? If you desire something, no matter what, you can obtain it. Because nothing is free that's worth having. You ever heard that? I mean, my grandfather used to just pound that into my head. No, there's no free lunch, son. 
Get out there and work for it. Problem with that saying is this is why so many religions have a problem with salvation being free and they try to add good works to the work that Jesus did on the cross. Many religions try to do that and that's exactly what these folks in John chapter six, what are the works that I must do? And Jesus said, the work is to believe. This is probably why they asked that question. So when we bring our lives to God in the spirit of sacrifice and obedience, no matter how insignificant our gifts are, he will do extraordinary things with them. And so I want to list a few things as practical application that we've discussed. These are things for our memory. Number one, the one who creates the storm can also calm the storm. You need to be mindful that the God we serve is so big and he promises over and over again that nothing that happens to one of his children first doesn't go through the filter of his grace. Now, it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it's really difficult. You lose people, you go through a divorce, a bankruptcy, you go through these things and it doesn't feel good. But you can say, but God promised in Romans 8, 28, that he's going to work all things together for my good. And he promises to those who love God and to those who've been called according to his purpose, he's going to work it out for good. That doesn't mean the situation's good. It doesn't mean that what's happening is good. What it means is in the end of it, everything, it will be good. And whether it's a trial that God has allowed in your life or a trial that you have because of your own consequences of your own sin, God is able. God is able. The second thing, don't work for things that won't last. So ask yourself, since I can't take a poll, you know, with a full room this morning, what are you laboring for? Now, that doesn't mean, you know, our family's got to eat and all that sort of stuff. I understand but what has precedence in your life? What's most important in your life? What are you laboring for? You know, after you have that fourth BMW, after you have the boat and the RV and all that, is that really what matters? Because tomorrow, if you take your last breath, someone else is gonna be enjoying your RV. Again, Charles Thomas Studd, only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Number three, we cannot complete a to-do list to earn salvation. Receiving eternal life has nothing to do with your works whatsoever. Nothing. You have to admit you're empty. You come with empty hands and you have to admit that Jesus took your place on the cross and received his free gift. And then you will have life. Number four, God wants us to be all in. Set apart for him, exercising your spiritual gifts, things of eternal value. And then number five, and this is hard for a lot of us type A persons. Number five is the most important, especially on Labor Day. It reminds us that the Lord wants to give us his rest, his rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A theological definition of the word rest means to cease from striving, to cease from working, 
there's a lot of people who think, you know, yeah, Jesus died for me. I believe all that. But somehow I got to prove my worth to dad. I just got to prove my worth to him somehow. And, and I just the, the harder I work, the more he'll love me. And, and don't take this as a challenge to sit on your blessed assurance and do nothing. But God can't love you any more than he loves you right where you're at. You cannot work hard and earn daddy's favor. Your daddy loves you. He loved you so much and proved it by giving himself on the cross. And so, so many of us are constantly striving in our minds that I, I got to be good to get God. I got to be good to get God. And that is so backwards. You got to get God to be good. You don't get good to get God. It doesn't work that way. The Lord's rest is a rest from labor and from mental exertion. It's a peace that surpasses all human understanding, knowing that I sit in the arms of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And there's nothing I can do to change that. It's worry and the things that disturb you, you lay aside because you're resting in Jesus. Our Kent Hughes said, as Christians, we understand that there's no rest for the soul apart from Jesus. God's rest is found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he gives joy, he gives peace, he gives love and salvation and rest in his goodness. So here's the challenge right here. Last there in your notes. Stop striving and rest in the love of Christ. Jesus' salvation is free, and he wants to give us abundant life. I want you to think about this for a second. Let's say that you tried for a very long time to have a child and you couldn't and you couldn't and you couldn't and you finally have a child and you have this little bread snatcher and you just love them so, so much. You do anything for this child and you love this child. I mean, in fact, I mean, you worship the ground the child walks on. You do anything for the child. You want to make sure that child has the best education, best everything. And one day you find out that that child is scared that you don't care about them. What would that do to your heart, Mom? What would that do to your heart, Dad? You never want your children to think somehow my parents don't love me. That'd break my heart. It would really break my heart if my kids didn't know that I loved them. Now take that on the level of God himself. God the Father talking to God the Son. God the Son's asking, Dad, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And God the Father says, Son, there's no other way. This was a plan from the beginning of time that you would redeem our people by taking the cross. And so Jesus goes to the cross. He's brutalized. He's hung on a cross. He dies. He's buried. He raises on the third day. And then 2,000 years later, we're sitting here striving and worried. Does he love me? That's the same idea, right? He's like, why would you question my love for you? I love you. Rest in that love. You're good enough the way I made you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. Every week we're in the back. We would love to pray for you. And if you don't know my Jesus, this morning would be a great time. Come on back. Let me tell you my testimony. One of us will tell you our testimony. We'll lead you to the cross. And if you do know Jesus and there's something that's just weighing you down, worrying you, or even a praise report, Come tell us. We would love to pray with you. Thank you for listening to Pastor Rich preach the sermon, A Christian's Labor, from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 15 through 29.
Tune in next week as we continue the Gospel of Mark sermon series. You can also be part of our Sunday service in person or online every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Watch our live stream on our website, YouTube, or Facebook page. Our website is livingfaithclimate.com. That is livingfaithclimate.com. To find our Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram profile, simply search for Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. That is Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. You can also find these links in the description of this week's episode. If you want to show your appreciation, you can tell others about us, subscribe to our podcast, and you can also leave a review so more people can hear the Word of God. Thank you again, and God bless you.